We are in the midst of a series, we're in the second week of a series called Exiles, and we're going through the book of Daniel. And today we're in Daniel chapter 2. Last week we were in Daniel chapter 1, and I kind of gave a little bit of background on the history leading up to this point, the history leading Israel into exile. And if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go online and watch it. We talked about how to live godly in the midst of a godless world, and we're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 2 today. But before we get started, let's pray and ask the Lord to open up our hearts. Father, we thank you so much for your word that it's given to us as uh, a book of love and instruction. And Father, we, we listen to it. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. So God, would you open up our hearts? Would you change our minds? God, as we hear the challenges in this book, would we not think, oh, that's something good for this other person. I should tell this person that, that, that Pastor Blake said that. No, but God, would we say, Lord, would you do that in my heart? Would you start with me? So, Father, start with me. Start with us this morning and change our hearts. Open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we talked about how the book of Daniel is not an adventure story and it's not a prophetic manual. Although it includes those elements, it's it's full of adventure. It's full of fiery furnaces and lion's dens and there's kings and dreams and visions and it's an exciting book. And... uh, it does talk a lot about these visions that Daniel has of, of the end times and the return of Jesus. But the book of Daniel is primarily written to a people who are in exile. To a people who are waiting to return to their home. And it's an instruction guide to how to live godly in the midst of a godless world. The book of Daniel was written to show us how to remain faithful to God. How to remain godly in the midst of a godless world. <clears throat> And I explained last week that uh, we're going to be focusing uh, primarily on the first seven chapters of the book of Daniel because the, the book of Daniel is split into two sections. The first seven chapters are Daniel's stories and the last five chapters are Daniel's visions. And so we're going to talk a little bit about those visions towards the end of this series, but we're going to focus primarily on the first seven chapters. Now these seven chapters are very, very interesting because the first chapter was, is kind of an introduction to who Daniel is, and it talks about how, uh, how uh, Babylon's plan is to really indoctrinate the people of God and teach them the way of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, wanted the people of God to love Babylon, to be, become part of the culture. Well, the remaining chapters through chapter 7, chapters 2 through 7, each have a linking narrative to it. So each chapter from here on out uh, has another chapter that parallels it. So in this chapter, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to be talking about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he has. And he has this dream of this statue with these four medals. And each of these medals represents um, a nation or, or a kingdom. And then in chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And these, these beasts each represent kingdoms or, or, um, or kings. And so chapters 2 and 7 really have the same message, but both are uh, given by different people. God gives a pagan king a dream of the coming Uh, of the coming rule of God's kingdom, and then he gives Daniel a vision of the coming rule of God's kingdom. So chapters two and seven go together. Chapters three and chapter six are linked together because they're both stories of faithfulness to God under persecution. So chapter three 
is the story of the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. We're going to talk about that next week. I'm so excited to talk about that. Uh, but it's also paralleled with chapter 6, which is Daniel's, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Both stories are about faithfulness to God in the midst of persecution, and they are paralleled to one another. And then chapters 4 and 5 are actually contrasting chapters, where chapter 4 is this um, narrative of, of King Nebuchadnezzar on the rooftop of his palace, and he's glorifying himself. He's making himself look high and mighty, and the Lord humbles him by turning him into a beast, for seven years. This is like a whole beauty and the beast kind of story right here. I told this story to my son Gideon when, when I was putting him to bed, and he was like, no way, this actually happened. I said, yeah, this actually happened. And so chapter four is King Nebuchadnezzar gets turned into a beast because of his pride, but ultimately he humbles himself, and he's restored. His kingdom is given back to him. The next chapter, chapter five, is the story of his son, Belshazzar, who does the same thing. He exalts himself, he glorifies himself, he's mocking God, but he sees the writing on the wall, this is the, the narrative of the writing on the wall, and he fails to humble himself, and he's killed that very night. And so those are linking narratives too. And so I, I explain that to say that this chapter, we're going to be reading in Daniel chapter 2, but keep in mind that as we come back to chapter 7, I want us to recall what we talked about in this chapter because the two of these chapters go hand in hand. But today we're going to focus primarily on Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, the book of Daniel is considered to be apocalyptic literature. Um, and the word apocalypse in our Greek, def or excuse me, in our English definition comes from the Greek word apocalypto. But both have very different meanings. When we talk about the apocalypse in our English definition, what are we referring to? We're referring to a terrifying end of the world uh, catastrophic event, right? World ending event. And uh, it refers to fear, it refers to terror. Uh, we have all these movies, Apocalypse Now, Deep Impact, all these stories about the end of the world. But in the Bible, the Greek word apocalypto means to reveal. And so all throughout scripture, this word apocalypto is, is seen throughout scripture. And it means that God is pulling back the curtain and showing humanity what he's doing behind the scenes. He's apocalypsing something to us. And so in this chapter, God apocalypses, he apocalypses King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And this Greek word is also used in the book of Matthew when Jesus is praying to God. And he says, God, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise, but you have apocalypsed them. You have revealed them to little children. And so this word uh, apocalypse does not refer to a world-ending catastrophic event more that it refers to the revealing of what God is doing behind the scenes. Now, let me clarify here that for those who don't walk with God, for those who are far, with God, far away from God, when God reveals what he's doing, it is a world-ending event for those people who are living far from God. If you're living far from God, when you see God's plan, when you see that he's going to ultimately reign and rule on earth, this means that your selfish narrative, that your desires are now going to die. It is a world-ending event for people who don't follow Jesus. But for people who follow Jesus and love the Lord, when the Lord, when God apocalypses something to us, it's actually hopeful, right? 
It's a message of hope that he is coming again, that he is going to establish his kingdom again, and we are going to be free from sin and free from tears and pain. It's a hopeful message, isn't it? Well, I pray today that God would apocalypse his word to you, that this chapter in Daniel would be apocalypse to you, that he would, be, that he would reveal what he's doing behind the scenes and it would open up our hearts and change our hearts. So let me set up this chapter a little bit. Uh, it begins with an ultimate test. How many of you like to be tested? Anybody like tests? Maybe you're really good in school. School had some, I, I remember some difficult tests, taking some difficult tests in school. I hear that the Marines endure uh, some pretty grueling tests. Do we have any, any Marines in the room? All right, Marine, Marine in the back. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for your service. But I hear the Marines have endured some grueling testing in, in the past. Uh, but the, the most grueling of all tests, I would have to say, is when I am on the couch and I have my phone in my hand and my wife is talking in my ear and then she says, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> and I look at her and I go, yeah, of course I heard what she said. And she goes, then what did I just say? <laughs> this is the test of all tests, husbands, right? This is life and death. This is, this is make it or break it right here. This is a, no, but Daniel is going through a test right here. He's roughly 18 years old. He has just completed his Babylon, his three years of Babylonian training, and now is beginning to serve under the king. And this king, Nebuchadnezzar, has had these uh, reoccurring, disturbing dreams, and it's the same dream. And so what he does is he calls his magicians and his diviners and his sorcerers to come, and he doesn't ask them for the interpretation of his dream. He doesn't tell them what his dream was, and ask for the interpretation, he tells them, I want you to recall to me what my dream was. Come on. Are you serious? Are you serious, your majesty? And his diviners go, king, there's nobody on earth who could ever do that for you. I'm sorry, but just, if you would just tell us the meaning of your dream, we'll explain. And the king goes, no, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to trick me. And, and, and believe me, if you're trying to trick me, I will tear you up into pieces and I will turn your house into rubble. He says, if you can't tell me what my dream is, I'm going to kill you and turn your houses into rubble. And so he gets furious and he orders the execution of all of his wise men, which includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they have just become wise men. What a great entrance into the king's service, right? So the king orders that all of his wise men be executed. So the guard goes to Daniel and his three friends and uh, he's about to, to carry out the king's wishes when Daniel says, what, why is the king so upset? He has no idea what just happened in the palace. And the guard explains to him, he's upset because nobody can tell him what his dream was and explain to him the interpretation. And Daniel says, let me go talk to the king. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go talk to the king. So he goes before the king, and by the way, the fact that Daniel is allowed to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar at this point after he's so furious, it means that Daniel had favor. He already had been given favor. The king already knew that he was wise, that he, uh, he was understanding, and so Daniel had favor, and he stands before the king, and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you would give me time, I'm going to go seek wisdom from the Lord. And, uh, and I'll be back, and I'll explain to you what your dream was. So the king lets him go. And so we're going to pick it up from Daniel uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Are you there? <coughs> this is what happens next. Daniel goes away to find what this dream was. In verse 17, Then Daniel returned to his house, 
and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons and disposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals. Now notice this, this that word again. This, this portion of scripture is actually written in Aramaic, but it's the same word. He reveals deep and hidden things. <clears throat> he knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what is asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel is in a crisis. He is in an ultimate test. It's a, it's a matter of life and death. If he doesn't get this dream from God, if he doesn't explain this dream to God, he is going to die and his friends are going to die. He's in a crisis. He's being tested. And when God's people are put in the midst of a crisis, the first thing that they should do is pray. God's people, number one, pray first. They pray first. When faced with certain death, the first thing Daniel does is pray with his friends. Let me ask you, what's the first thing that you do when trouble comes? What's the first thing? Maybe you cry. I heard you, I cry. Maybe you try to fix it on your own. Maybe, maybe you turn to something that helps you cope. But what's, what's Daniel do? He prays. He goes to the Lord. Most people that I know would probably jump out the window at this point. <clears throat> Say, this is an impossible task. How is, how is this going to happen? This is the first time in the Bible we see someone ask for their dream to be recalled for them. Joseph would interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but Pharaoh would tell him his dream before he asked for the interpretation. The first time in the Bible that somebody says, tell me what my dream was. This is impossible. An impossible task. Let me ask you, have you been faced with an impossible task in your life? Have you ever given up hope and thought there's no way that this can turn around? There's no way, there's no way I can go up from here. Maybe your marriage has gotten to the place where you think to yourself, I've said too much. I've done too much. I don't know if forgiveness can happen at this point. I feel like my marriage is going to end. And you've given up hope. You think it's an impossible thing that you're facing. Maybe the doctor told you that you'll always be in pain or that you can't be healed. It's an impossible task, something that, that, can't, that can't happen. Maybe you think that what you've done in the past is so terrible that you can't experience the freedom and forgiveness that God has to offer. You think that your sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Come on, that's a lie. But you think it's this hopeless, impossible thing. Do you need answers? Do you need God to reveal a mystery to you? Here's what we should do as God's people, that we are called to pray to God who reveals mysteries. If God did the impossible for Daniel, he can do the impossible for you. <clears throat> I shared a story last week. I'm going to grab some water right here. I shared a story last week 
of, uh, of my family when we were uh, hosting um, a Russian, a Belarusian girl, and, uh, and we were separated from her. I don't know if this was last week. It was a couple weeks ago. We were separated from her, and we prayed to God that we would be reunited somehow, and she ended up moving five minutes away from our house. It's this, uh, I, I don't want to tell the whole story again, but if you want to hear more, you can go to a couple weeks ago and listen to it. But it was this impossible thing that God did for my family. Instead of submitting to pity, submit to prayer. Instead of focusing on the problem, focus on the petition. Focus on praying. Don't say, woe is me. Declare, great is he. And allow the God of of mysteries to reveal the answer to you. We serve a God of the impossible. Pray first. The second thing that God's people are called to do is we are called to praise always we are called to praise in the midst of trial in the midst of crisis we give God praise <coughs> Daniel goes and he petitions to the Lord but the next thing that he does is he praises God for the answer that was given to him remember that praise and prayer they go hand in hand so many people stop at the prayer and they don't go on to praise God for what he's done. It doesn't matter if you haven't seen the answer to your prayer yet. We give God praise. <coughs> we thank him for what he's going to do. We can't stop at the prayer. We need to give him praise. When things work out and your prayers are answered, do you think, oh, that was convenient? What a coincidence. I prayed, and then this happened, and I got this check in the mail, or, or, or this person was, was healed. Oh, the doctors are so smart. I didn't even need to pray. No, no, no. We have to recognize that God moves through our life in many different ways, and we give him praise in our life in every season. Praise is a powerful weapon. Praise is a weapon. It crushes pride. Praise crushes pride. It destroys depression. It gets rid of anger. When you praise, you remove everything everything else that made its way onto the throne of your heart, and you put God back on that throne. So many of us, we allow things, I do this in my life, I allow things to sit on the throne of my heart and I become idolatrous in my life and I, I, I start to make things more important than God but when you give him praise, you start to remove those things off of that throne and say, God, I'm sorry that I, I let things get in the way of my relationship with you and you begin to put God back on the throne where he belongs. Praise is a powerful weapon. Let's continue reading we're going to start in verse 27 we're going to jump to verse 27 so daniel praises god for the interpretation of this dream and he makes his way back to king nebuchadnezzar and he's about to tell him what his dream was but before he does this is what daniel says verse 27 daniel replied no wise man enchanter magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about but there is a god In heaven, who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what was going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I am greater in wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. 
The next thing that God's people are called to do in any season, especially in the midst of a crisis, is they are to promote God. They promote God. Notice that Daniel here, he says, no one can explain the king this mystery, but there's a God in heaven. See, Daniel is only 18 years old. He just started working for the king. He has an opportunity here to make himself look really good. He has an opportunity here to take credit for himself. If there's any time or any chance for promotion, this is it. This is his chance to get the king's favor, right? But instead of taking credit for himself, he says, there is no one else alive who can do this. And I'm going to tell you this not because I'm wiser, but because I serve a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He promotes God. He gives God glory, and he practices humility. By the way, all of these points just so happen to be the letter P. I'm not a big fan of alliteration, but it just worked out this week, so I'm so glad it did. He promoted God, and he practiced humility. All these P's being thrown around. See, we're surrounded in our, in our world by false humility. We're surrounded by false humility. Humility is not deflecting earned praise. It's not, it's not demeaning yourself. Humility is all about promoting the fact that your achievements are due to God's goodness. It's about promoting God. That's what true humility is. Promoting God above yourself and saying that his, um, his goodness is why I've been given my gifts and talents. I once was at a conference and I gave a, a worship leader, I wanted to go up to the worship leader and give him a compliment because I thought he just did an excellent job leading worship. And so I go up to him and I said, hey man, I just want to tell you, you are doing a phenomenal job. This just sounds amazing. Great job leading worship. He goes, oh, it's not me. It's God. And I wanted to say, it was good, but it wasn't that good, buddy. <laughs> you know, if it was God, I think it would sound pretty awesome it was good but it wasn't that good that is false humility true humility isn't deflecting earned recognition but it's instead acknowledging that God gave you those gifts or those talents and it's not allowing that praise to go to your head it's promoting him giving him the glory humility is such a godly trait and Jesus modeled humility so well when he was here on earth he washed his disciples feet and he never sought his own glory. He always gave glory to his father. When he performed a miracle, he never sought his own glory. He gave glory to his father. He was a man of humility, a man who always promoted God, who gave God the recognition he deserved. I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. Maybe some of you have heard this, but C.S. Lewis wrote, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's pretty good. It's acknowledging the greatness of God and recognizing that all your gifts and talents have come from him. It's promoting him and practicing humility. The people of God are called to pray first, to praise always, promote God by practicing humility. So Daniel goes to the king and he explains to the king his dream. And this is, what, this is the dream that the king had. Nebuchadnezzar, while he's lying in bed, dreams of this great statue. It's this tall, towering, amazing statue. And it's made of four different kinds of metals. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. The, the chest and the arms of the statue are made of silver. The stomach and the thighs are made of bronze. And the legs and the feet are made of both iron and clay. And suddenly a rock 
that's uncut by human hands comes from heaven and smashes the feet of the idol and obliterates all the metals and the statue. And from that rock, that rock becomes a mountain and, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a kingdom that is established forever. And so uh, Daniel begins to explain to him, explain to the king that, that the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar, is you. You are that head of gold. The head of gold is the Babylonian empire because you're great and you're powerful. At this point, uh, Babylon had already conquered Egypt and Assyria. They were a mighty empire. They were enormous. They were powerful. King Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king. The head of gold represents you. And Daniel goes on to say, the chest of silver represents a kingdom that is going to conquer you. And after that, another kingdom, the, the, the legs of bronze, is going to conquer that kingdom. And finally, there will be another kingdom that's more, more inferior than all those kingdoms that's going to conquer that kingdom. But in the time of those kings, we're going to start, I'm gonna, I'm not, I, I forgot, this is what we're going to read right here. Verse 44. I'm, gonna, I'm getting excited. We're going to read it. Verse 44. Daniel says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. The next thing that God's people are called to do is God's people present his authority. Daniel is taking a chance by going to one of the most powerful kings in the known world who's already conquered Egypt, already conquered Assyria, and Daniel's taking a chance. He knows the interpretation of the dream, but I wonder if, if there was any point where he was a little bit nervous because he was about to tell the king that there will be a kingdom that is greater than yours, that you are inferior to another kingdom. He's taking a chance, but he presents God's authority to Nebuchadnezzar regardless. He feared God much more than he feared King Nebuchadnezzar. And he presents his authority. He presents God's authority. See, God's authority is above any government, above any president, above any nation, and we can't place stock in the ever-changing powers that sit in the Oval Office. We place so much stock and the powers that sit in the Oval Office and in our government, we place so much power in their hands. Many people, they've presented the authority of our earthly government to their friends and family instead of presenting God's authority. They present the authority of our government by saying stuff like, oh man, this president isn't godly enough. This president is leading us into communism. We're falling apart. Or this president is this. This president is that. And they begin to present all the woes and the worries of our earthly government but the president, or the, 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 excuse me, they present the authority of governments rather than present the authority of God. And here's, my, here's the message behind this, is we can't be a people that spread fear. We spread the fear of God. We spread hope in God. 
hope of his never-ending authority. We don't spread fear. We spread the hope of his ultimate authority. Because because when people look at your life, they're either going to see a person who is exalting or presenting the authority of a political party or the authority of a government. But the people in our world, they need to see you present the kingdom of God. They need, you to, they need you to represent Jesus, represent his authority, that he is ultimately going to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. God's people are called to present his authority above all other authority. And it should give people hope. It should give people hope. Yeah, the world is kind of crazy right now. Yeah, things are, going, things are going crazy, but we serve a God who is in control. He has all authority. He is ultimately in control. The last point, the last thing that God's people are called to do is we should plan for Jesus' return. Plan for Jesus' return. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it, but this dream was all about Jesus. This dream was all about Jesus. Let me explain why. This, is, this dream was given 400 years before, uh, before Jesus even stepped on the earth. And this head of gold represents the kingdom of Babylon. That's just what Daniel said. It's a physical representation. It's, it's, it's the kingdom of Babylon. The next, the next kingdom to conquer Babylon was the kingdom of Persia. And that was the chest of silver. The kingdom to conquer Persia was Greece. And that was the thighs and legs of bronze. And the feet of iron and clay represents Rome, because Rome conquered Greece after that. And in the time of Rome, what happened? Jesus came on the scene, and he established a kingdom. He established a spiritual kingdom that will, ne- that will endure forever. It will never be destroyed. It will never be taken over. And so Daniel is giving, here, here, this is what I find amazing, is this, there's this pagan king in Babylon who is, who is being, who's being spoken to by God. And he's being told of the coming Messiah that is going to be on earth 400 years from now. And Daniel comes to him and he explains to him, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know this, Daniel doesn't even know his name, but who he's dreaming about is Jesus. And I'm sure as Daniel is receiving this interpretation, he's probably being filled with hope. Oh my goodness, God has just given our king a dream. It's gonna make him so upset probably, but it is amazing It's amazing that he's coming. He's going to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. I'm sure it filled Daniel and his friends with such hope when God gave him that interpretation. This was the message of hope for the exiles in Babylon. Jesus established a spiritual kingdom on earth in the time of Rome. But in Daniel chapter 7, in the paralleling chapter that we're going to read, it focuses less on on the spiritual kingdom that, that uh, God has established, and it, it's going to focus more on the, the physical kingdom that he's establishing in the last days. When Jesus returns, the Bible says that we can expect he's going to establish a physical kingdom that lasts forever, and it's to give us hope. We're supposed to put our hope in it. I know, maybe you're watching or you're in this room and you're, you're young like me. You've got young kids. When I hear this message, you know, I think to myself, man, I don't want Jesus to come just yet. I want to meet my, grand, my grandkids and my great-grandkids. And I want, how many of you have ever had those thoughts? Lord, please don't return until I get married. Please don't return until I see my babies. But I, what I hear when I talk to people as they get older, they start to think, God, I'm ready for you to come. <laughs> right? Right? 
And you know, I'm beginning to see as I read scripture how much hope it's bringing to my life. How much hope the promise of being able to see my Jesus face to face and be wrapped in his arms and to see him and to experience that, it's, I'm just, it's just filling me with such hope. And that's really what this, this, this message is supposed to give us. It's a message of hope for us that his kingdom is coming and it will endure forever. We're supposed to now plan for Jesus' return. When God reveals his plan, just like what I said at the beginning, when God reveals his plan to to those who are far from him, it's a world-ending event. When he apocalypses it to people who are far from him, it's a world-ending event. I don't get to do the things that I wanted to do anymore. But for those who are following Jesus, when he apocalypses his plan to those who love him, it fills you with hope, something to look forward to. So God's people are called to pray first, to praise always. We promote God in any crisis, in any season. We present his authority above all authority on earth, and we plan for his return. We live our lives in a way expecting that he is going to come back. He is going to come back. We're going to close in prayer in just a moment, and we're going to take communion. And um, communion is such a, a special thing that we, that we as followers of Jesus get to do. And so um, would you... Get out your communion elements. If you didn't get one, you can, uh, there's some in the lobby, in the bowl, or maybe an usher can bring you some. <clears throat> but let's pray to the Lord and ask him to solidify what we learned today. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you that you are, you are bringing us to new heights. You're showing us new depths. And Lord, we, we don't want uh, to miss anything. God, we want all that you have for us all that's in your word. So Father, would you shape us? Would you mold us? And God, part of shaping us and molding us is this act of communion. It's it's this partnering with you. God, we thank you that you've given us this, um, this, this act of communion as a way to identify with your, with your crucifixion, with your death to sin. Father, we thank you for the bread. This bread that you hold in your hand, this cracker, it represents the body of Christ. And, and Isaiah 53 says that his body was broken for you. That he was, he was bruised for you. His body was broken so that your body could be whole. And so Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made. God, we thank you that, that you've, you've invited us to enter in into a relationship with you that is whole, that's not broken. So God, we take this in remembrance of you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. In this cup that you hold in your hand, it represents the blood of Jesus. Don't worry, it's just grape juice. It represents the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus was shed for our sins. In fact, all throughout the Bible, the people of God have always tried to get closer and closer to God on their own by offering sacrifices and by trying to uh, adhere to the law that God gave his people, but they all fall short. They all fail. They can't do it. So often in our walk with Jesus, we try to do it on our own. We think if I just pray more, if I read the Bible more, if I go to this Bible study, and if I I become more holy by, by my actions, then I can get closer to God. And that's a lie. Those are good things, but you can't get closer to God by doing those things. The only way you get closer to God is right here, 
by receiving the blood of Jesus over your life and asking him to forgive your sins. And when he looks at you after that, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus, is what the Bible says. So Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed for our sins. God, we thank you uh, for, the, for the gift of repentance. It's a gift, God. We thank you that we can come to you and be free and start over, have a clean slate with you once again. Jesus, renew us, give us new identities. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's take the blood together. Would you stand with me, church? Father, I pray for every person in this room, God, that you would bless them today, that you would fill them with your goodness, with your spirit. Would you show us how to live godly in the midst of a godless world? Teach us to press into who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. I hope you have a great time watching a football game today, and we'll see you next week.